This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM Radio Network. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome. Sharing the best books that influenced her the most on her life journey this week is author, artist and spiritual podcaster Tessa Lord, whose mission is to neutralize the fear and confusion out there by using the internet as her medium. Tessa has written non-fiction books that cover subjects such as bridging diversity within families and cultures, sharing the shaman's worldview of animal wisdom, teaching empowerment to imprisoned juveniles, and what embracing joy brings to us challenged humans. Tessa Lord, welcome. Thank you so much, Sandy. I'm so happy to be here. Tessa, so tell me what it was like for you having to pick just 10 books. Well, it was actually quite easy because I know the big markers of my life. I feel them so strongly. And it was actually a delight to do this exercise because it's really always very good for all of us to get more clear about where we are. And I imagine those lists change quite a bit as we go through a journey, but at the time it was very, very wonderful exercise. Mm, good. Now, your love of books grew from an early fascination with encyclopedias. Tell <laughs> us about that. <laughs> well, I just had this urge to know, to create, and to absorb the ability to communicate and encyclopedias and dictionaries. <laughs> I was well known for reading the dictionary from cover to cover before I read picture books or anything. And uh, so encyclopedias became very handy because in those days, of course, I was raised in the 50s and 60s. Encyclopedias were everywhere. And today it's not so easy to go to an encyclopedia, but we have Google. <laughs> we do indeed. <laughs> We do indeed. I remember the first time at a book fair when I saw um, somebody demonstrating CDs for the first time and told me, look, look at this range of books and they're all on this CD. And I didn't believe it. Yes. And our Kindles. I have a Kindle on my iPhone. I have a Kindle on my iPad. I don't have a, a Kindle separately, but I read books uh, and audiobooks. All my books I make into audiobooks also because I love the sound and the dramatization of mm. a story or information. Mm. What kind of books do you prefer? My taste Beyond in books. Encyclopedias. <laughs> oh, yeah. Today I read everything from science to um, fiction, 
and nonfiction, I usually have three or four books going at a time because depending on my mood or the level of energy I have in the day, I feel that I can absorb either fiction or nonfiction. When I go to sleep, I like to go with really beautifully written fiction. And, mm. and when I'm more alert during the day and I can sit there and really go through all the different um, lessons that nonfiction writers present to us, that's when I nonfiction comes in. Mm. So your list, is it in um, the order in which you read the books? I think it is. I, I tried to think back to my childhood and the most recent things, and to the best of my ability, yes, I would say it's chronological. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start with book one, which is the beloved classic, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, uh, published in 1923 and never been out of print since. Oh, yes. It's remarkable, isn't it? And I relate so much, even today, be, before I read it as a child, I didn't know that I was destined to be both a writer and an artist, as Khalil Gibran is. So his his drawings, I didn't know that he did them when I read the book. But I was introduced to it, and believe it or not, in like about seventh grade. So that makes me about 11 or 12, right at the beginning of adolescence, right at that time when all of us are experiencing the awakening of our yearning to know who are we, where are we at in this universe, why are we here? And I had no answers from my upbringing, from my parents, from the institutions, the churches, the schools, but I had this very enlightened teacher it was humanities. I remember his name to this day, Mr. Driscoll. And good old Mr. Driscoll, he said, we must all read the prophet. And what a glorious thing that was to introduce a child in public school, mind you. This was not a private institution and it was not particularly of high caliber. We had students of all different levels. But as soon as I started reading, it's poetry, but it's prose and it's mystical, but yet it's so functioner, functionary, I said, wow, this is almost like a guide to how I should approach life. And um, it was very remarkable. I had an instantaneous relationship with it. I would say in terms of the yogic path, which I have embraced all my life, it was the awakening of my kundalini. And I just felt ugh, absolutely enthralled with particularly references to nirvana and i started looking for nirvana <laughs> i would go where out, is it <laughs> where is it and uh, looking under rocks looking behind trees and i really you know it took me quite a few decades in my life to realize it's all within yeah isn't it interesting i mean those were the days when teachers could teach whatever they chose to teach within a certain you know um uh category but today, I yes. can't imagine any teacher would be allowed to use this book. Absolutely. Or any right. of the other great classics. Anything referring to our spiritual life, for yeah. sure, would, would not, not be yeah. allowed. I don't know how it is in the UK, but here in the States, they're so strict. And it's a shame. But uh, my parents certainly had never heard of this book. I never shared it with them. I came from a very, very simple uh, you know, 
not so much working class but struggling class <laughs> mm. and and mm. so even even today though i will refer to the prophet it's always something i i look back on and if anybody asks me to give words for like let's say somebody has died or somebody's getting married or somebody has been gifted with a child born i always share with them a verse from the, those different categories from the prophet yeah yeah and you're right it is a you know it is a guidebook for life i think that and the four agreements you know that's all you need to give them <laughs> yeah everybody should be gifted these books <laughs> yeah yeah so number two is the I Ching, the ancient chinese divination text that is amongst the oldest of the chinese classics Yes, it is. And I believe, I'm not a scholar, but I do believe Confucius, who was around 600 uh, before Christ, 600 BCE, uh, I believe he is the one who actually put it down in writing. Up until that time, it was just passed on orally. But I was very attracted to the I Ching as a teenager because I needed um, comfort and solace and guidance. And whoever introduced me to it, I can't remember right now, but it was very popular among people in, in the 60s when I was in my searching, the beginning of my searching years. And I like the fact that it has to do with mathematics, where it actually captures one moment in time. Right? It was the beginning of my relationship with the present moment that you capture whatever it is that you're thinking about that needs to be answered in that one moment in time using coins or sometimes ritualistically you use yarrow stalks. And I actually did harvest yarrow stalks and made my own little bundle. And so I would use both ways. But even today, I do approach the I Ching when I have a conundrum that I just need advice about or insight about. And I really don't want to use a human I don't want to use a, a dear friend or a, a mentor. I want to use the oracle, they call it the oracle, and a mystical connection to the consciousness that permeates the universe. So I do use it today, and I keep accurate records of all my approaches to the I Ching, and by gum, they've all come true. <laughs> Everything every I, single I, one? I every single one, because many of them are abstract. And it has yes. to do with your interpretation. And yes. so when you read the interpretation at the time, it may not make sense right there and then, but because my records go back 30, 40, 50 years, <laughs> it's very interesting how it all fits in as a connected unit all throughout my journey. And I, and wow. I, yeah, it's very. You really, you really do chronicle everything then. Yes, and the first time I approached the I Ching, it told me, it spoke, it said, I am going to be like a wise grandmother to you. And at the time, I had a wise grandmother, but she had passed away. So I felt, oh my gosh, you know, it's almost like the spirit of my Lithuanian peasant grandmother who was, came to America as a young woman. She was very of the earth, but she was, anybody who's connected to the earth is mystical, just in the approach of being connected to nature yeah yeah mm, interesting uh <laughs> book number three light on yoga by bks ayenga published in the 60s 1966 i believe that sounds about right that's about when i discovered it 
So my story has to do with scoliosis, <laughs> among many things. Physically, I was challenged. I probably fell out of a big tree because I was a tomboy. And I suffered a lot from bad uh, nerval pine, uh, nerval injuries in my spine. So after going to all sorts of doctors and my parents not knowing what to do about it, they tried their best. I discovered yoga. And at the time, I was a freshman in college in Boston. Believe it or not, nobody was have offering yoga classes, at least not to my knowledge. And so when somebody said, you should try yoga, because I was in such pain. And I said, well, how? And they handed me a book. <laughs> they said, here, try this. I believe it was by Satchitananda. And so I followed it step by step, picture by picture, and taught myself how to do the very most basic Instantly, I was relieved of this horrendous nerve pain that had crippled me uh, all throughout my adolescence. So I just knew that yoga was going to be part of my life story. And to this day, it is. I do yoga every day in various forms. Right now, I'm suffering from uh, uh, recuperating from a broken leg. So I call it broke leg yoga. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> you do it by just doing whatever you can. And people who are really enmeshed in the yogic practices, not just the poses, but the philosophy, we know that wherever you are with your body, you can do yoga, even if you are in a state of paralysis, by following your breath, by having the consciousness attuned to your physical aspect, no matter what where that physical aspect is that's yoga <laughs> and how is the scoliosis gone oh well as long as i do yoga at least if i'm traveling i try to do it but it's hard when you're on the road i must do it every two weeks uh if i somehow can't get to a place where i can do it or it's comfortable enough i do start to suffer yes because it's a lifelong thing it doesn't cure scoliosis yeah. it makes it, yeah. your body strong around it i would imagine it makes you more flexible too oh yes <laughs> yeah. yeah okay so number four this is a book that turns up every now and then um it is uh certainly one that is well known it's creative visualization use the power of your imagination to create what you want in your life by shakti gawain published in 1978 and arguably one of the first uh, really good books on manifesting. Yes, good old Shakti. I'm sad that she's no longer with us, but she left us so, so many great gifts. And at the time when I discovered creative visualizations, I was so in need of, of help, of transformation. My story has to do with um, a previous lifetime where I was uh, an active addict, alcoholic. Then I came into recovery in 1984. And my spiritual life truly, truly was reborn at that point in time. And Shakti Gawain was the single most, the, the most effective way that I found of letting go of these troubles and torments that every person who, who is grappling with addiction knows about, whether it's fear or shame or anger. And in particular, her exercise called the pink bubble. <laughs> Probably everybody knows about the pink bubble. But to this day, 
I will visualize putting all my troubles into this magnificent pink bubble that's like a, a huge hot air balloon and blessing whatever trouble it is as I put it into the pink bubble and then watching it arise and float away and just seeing it leave me. So that, that in particular was a beautiful, beautiful visualization. Mm. You said that um, sobriety began the light-filled phase of your life. Yes. Say a little I... bit more about that. Well, you know, a lot of people experience a rebirth. And uh, sometimes in the metaphysical world, they even presume to call it something like a walk-in, where you have another spirit walk into part of our entity that is not happy on this earth and because of trauma that i had as a child i uh became you know an angry young woman and other situations leading up to it, the politics at the time and every excuse that i had <laughs> i would use and i became a full-fledged addict alcoholic whatever it is didn't matter what the substance was really and i started off just thinking oh i'm exploring higher consciousness. That was my intent, to have the ultimate in experience that I could as a human being. And that's why it's very tricky these days with people experimenting with the plant medicines. I, I like to talk to people because I have a lot of knowledge about plant medicine. I even was a botanical illustrator for the early explorers of of the mind expansion through ayahuasca and coca and psilocybin because uh, I drew for botanists at Harvard University for many years. So my journey started quite innocently, but then became a raging, you know, addict, and I had to do something about that. And so at the age of 36, I finally had the crash, the bottom, whatever it's called, where you have to change or you die. There is no choice, really, when you go to that extreme. And just like the scoliosis, I'm so glad that I had scoliosis because it got me into yoga at a really early age. I now am really grateful that I had addiction because it got me into this amazingly profound relationship with my spiritual journey, just as deeply in the light as I was in the dark. So I, mm. I, I now I'm grateful. But I am now more sober than I was at the age of 36 when I came you know, into recovery. So how challenging was that period in your life? It was really <laughs> like going through a roller coaster where you have to buckle your seatbelt on tight because your emotions are just roiling. And the story of an addict is we're not comfortable with our emotions. We have not yet learned that our emotions are guideposts for our spiritual life. We're thinking, oh no, that I should not have these feelings because they're too intense. And without guidance, we think that they will kill us, our feelings. And so at the beginning of sobriety, people like Shakti Gawain, they, she saved my life to let go of all those troubles and, and give it another blessing, to give it a ritual, to make it become a spiritualization of my pain, which is what you do when you 
do ritual and you visualize things. It, 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 was, it personified my journey into the light. And I was very lucky because not just the rooms of recovery, which are available to everybody throughout the world, I'm so happy to say, they weren't up until the 50s. And, you know, we are all evolving. We're learning how to deal with people like who have addiction problems. But because of the rooms of recovery, and I also was blessed by having a spiritual teacher that I connected with deeply in the early days. And I just surrendered. I surrendered and I said, I'm starting from scratch because whatever I did before was all wrong. <laughs> mm. It's like a rebirth. Yeah, yeah. Well, which uh, leads us very neatly into the uh, next book, um, you know, very appropriate title, Initiation by mm. Elizabeth H. Uh, 1953 yes. that was published and this seems to come up a few times uh, a lot of people really like this book it's another game changer <laughs> because it's exploring past life mm -hmm. and it's exploring a new life and incorporating the knowledge from the past life into the new life with open arms and total integration and I related to everything I must reread that book because there's some mathematical things in there that were I didn't quite get went over my head. But she um, explores an ancient remembrance where she vividly had experiences like right there. She was in her past life. So it wasn't just having vague little deja vus. She actually was being beckoned by her previous existence in ancient Egypt. Now, <laughs> my husband and I, we, we thoroughly embrace reincarnation, but we have a running joke. When people start talking about their past life, we say, oh, I was the priestess. I was the pharaoh. Well, we, we say we were the exterminator and the plumber in ancient Egypt. We had very humble uh, roles to play there. But Elizabeth H. didn't. And she had quite um, a high role in her life. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. And also the fact that she was a yoga teacher. So to me, it, it underscores the fact that when you actually participate in the fullness of yoga, not just the postures, but the philosophy and understand the, the wisdom that it comes from, which precedes Buddhism. Buddha was a yogi. People forget that. But yoga is not a religion. It's a philosophy. So as you're doing the yogic practices, you're moving your spine and increasing the energy of the kundalini. So it's easy to see how somebody who's, who's, who's really in the yogic world can have more of this comfortable relationship with a past life remembrance. But it never made you want to have a regression. Oh, no, I never have wanted to. I'm totally in the here and now. I have never been attracted to doing past life regression. I have family members who do it. We are very involved in the Edgar Casey Foundation for several generations. It's all over the place, past life this, past life that. I'm very comfortable having had the experiences that I did, even as a child. And the more I meditate, you know, more is exposed about connected connected consciousness whether it's a past life or just beyond that but uh i feel 
a regression is not necessary. I'm not that curious about it. Hmm. Number six, uh, a very common 10 best book, Siddhartha, Herman Hesse, 1922. And you describe this one as a masterpiece. To me, all of Hesse's work are masterpieces, but in particular Siddhartha, maybe it's because it's short, <laughs> but I try to reread it every year. And I love the way he takes liberties with the true story of the Buddha, who was Siddhartha Gautama, and he fictionalizes it. And to me, he enhances the story. He makes it better, which to me is the beauty of really good literature, really good fiction. As a matter of fact, my latest book that I just completed is fiction. There are some things you just cannot explore unless you go into the realm of fiction. Yes. And yeah. I, I just love the fact that it's it's based upon history, but it it goes into a different realm. Mm. So what what was the would you say is the most compelling, the most important thing that you took from that book? Well, the fact that I felt it was me, I made many of the same <laughs> choices or mistakes I don't know but you know I don't regret anything like for instance the way he dives into a, a material life a sensual life uh, turning his back almost on all the secrets that he was privy to with his traveling pal Gotama or Govinda and um, and and yet the more simple man Govinda was the one who actually attained the steadfast connection to his, his spiritual life earlier. It took a little while for Siddhartha to catch up. He had to go off on these exploratory tracks, which is my story. And it, it was wonderful to have that verification that it's okay to veer way off the path. Not all of us are destined to just wake up when we're teenagers like the prophet helped me to wake up and then just make a sure straight line to enlightenment. <laughs> it didn't happen with me and it didn't happen with Siddhartha in Hesse's version. But in the end, all is well. And he went to the place that he needed to be, which was a simple, humble uh, like boat, uh, what would you call it? A tender, boat tender, taking people across. It's so beautiful, taking people across the great water of a river. And do you feel that it's turned out well for you too? I feel that Siddhartha and I are one. <laughs> it's, my name could be Teza Siddhartha. <laughs> um, because right now, well, it's funny because my latest book is very much like that, to be a bridge uh, mm. for other people from, from this harsh reality of, you know, the material world into... The mystical connection with, to me, is the real, the real world, the conscious world that is all eternal, and so that was the subject of my latest book, and that's where I'm at with my life, and I'm very comfortable with mm. it. Well, this is the beauty of books, isn't it? They're all transportive. Yes, they are, and and the mm. fact that they're. They're there and they're an experience that you dive into. And each time I read Siddhartha, I must have read it at least 50 times, maybe more, I, I pick up something different. 
it's just so it has so many different facets mm. yeah well quite a change for our next book number seven which is becoming a writer by dorothea brand 1934 that was published and uh you say it may seem strange to count this how to write as a spiritual book for my special list but its subject is not directly a deepening of spiritual perspective but rather it offers help about tapping one's inner creative genius yes continue well, carry on from there dorothea brandy must have been like an agatha christie of spirituality because she knew how to hook you and bring you in thinking oh you want to learn how to write i'll teach you how to write but what she does is show us all that we have what she calls the genius which is really our higher consciousness and mm. she teaches us how to do it first of all she teaches you how to trust it she gives a little example in that beautiful book about how you, you can trust the fact that your consciousness will go to the place that you think about so therefore what you think you become and you are she gives a very clear example then she says okay i know this is hard for you to understand that you are a genius but you are and she calls it the creative coma <laughs> i love it instead of talking about oh the spirituality of life oh you're going to have a magnificent experience with something besides life she just almost uh, with great humor calls it the creative coma and she said and how you get into this is you get quiet you just be still you pay attention to your breath you think only when you're ready about what it is you want to write and only when you feel this urge do you dare to pick up a pencil and then with the pencil you write like a demon. You write as fast as you can, and you don't dot your I across your T's, and you don't worry about grammar. You just pour it out in this creative coma that you're in. And then when you feel, I have no more, then you stop. <laughs> and it's, so, it's a wonderful exercise. I actually taught our children how to write using this method. And it's such a fun thing to teach kids. And it stays with you throughout throughout your whole life and our kids are now in their 30s and they're both wonderful writers yeah. <laughs> you said um that she um uses an easy to understand diagram to explain how the human brain can be trained to believe whatever it holds in its thoughts and you said that, that you know that works and it it was instantaneous so tell me a little bit about that okay i I think other people might be familiar with this diagram. I've seen it somewhere else, but Dorothea really goes into it. So it's a circle, and she has a whole page of her book with this circle, and there's a line drawn through the center and both quadrants. So it's horizontal and vertical. And she says, get a string, attach a heavy weight like a key, and when you've got that, it's like a pendulum, yeah. And she said, put the circle down on a flat piece of like a, a desk, stand over it. And just with your mind, don't use any movement with your hand, hold the key 
right over the circle and think either the vertical or the horizontal line. So in other words, you are trying to be absolutely still with your hand, but your mind is looking at, let's say the vertical line. So you're looking at the vertical line and within seconds, little tiny micro movements have happened from brain to hand and this pendulum starts to swing. And so of course you, you're thinking, whoa, this witchcraft, but it's not. It is the brain sending out signals and it's connecting all throughout to the end of our tips of our fingers and there's little tiny micro movements, but if you're looking at your hand, you can't see it move. And then of course you say, well, that was just freaky. So then you choose the horizontal line and by gum, the same thing happens this time. You're thinking it's the horizontal line, and within seconds, the key starts to move horizontally. So that taught me very, very, very succinctly that as I think, I am. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I've not seen the pendulum used for that, but uh, yeah. Book number eight. Now, this one has some lovely stories attached to it. It is The Life mm -hmm. of Pi. Uh, which everybody knows was an Oscar-winning movie by Yen Martel. It was published in 2001. Um, yeah, tell us the story behind this. Well, I knew right away when I read it, because everybody was reading Life of Pi when it came out that year, all my yoga friends. Even though there were some pretty hairy scenes in there about this poor little vegetarian 14-year-old boy having to eat flesh, that was kind of scary for a vegetarian. But all my yoga friends, all my spiritual friends were saying, this book is fabulous. And by gum, I was so moved by it, I wrote a letter to Jan Martel. And this is the extraordinary thing about this book. It opened up a connection with Jan as a mentor of mine. And so I could, I could see that he was just tapping into something that I do with my work. But yet at that point... I had already written several books and I was being rejected by publishing houses and saying, we're not ready for this. This, this is not going to sell. And I was feeling frustrated. So Jan's book showed me that you can journey into the spiritual world with fiction and make it really intriguing and inspiring and entertaining, but deep. All those things. I mean, to me, they're parables. And so I, when I wrote Yen, I was sitting at my writing desk one day and out of the blue, he called me. And, and I, I, was, I was so flabbergasted, I, I was tongue-tied. He actually called me and he said, it's very important for you to never give up. Never give up. The world will catch up to you. The world needs all the spiritual creativity it can get. So... I'm calling you to tell you to not give up. And uh, throughout the years, I have kept in touch with Jan, and I actually went to visit him. He lives in Canada, and he's a wonderful person and so, so supportive of, of writers in general, but especially writers who uh, decide to tackle tough issues that the rest of the world is a little hesitant to get into, the publishing world, that is. So, Did he ever tell you what the inspiration behind that book was? 
Well, it's his own journey. I believe I can accurately say that because Jan is a curious spiritual soul, as I am. And just like his character, Pai, he dabbles in Christianity and Islam and Judaism and this sort of approach and that sort of approach. And and he calls himself a, a, a booty, a Sufi on the way to the hog. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he, he's, he was just so curious. And he traveled quite a bit. Right now he's raising a family. Um, he has a boatload of kids, <laughs> so he is not traveling. But... Um, you know, when you become a traveler, you're just the experiences that you get are more exotic and they're exactly what you need for your journey. So I think that was a, a lot of inspiration. Of course, he went to India and he did in his imagination the zoo and everything. And it's all a part of what happens when you take the real world and allow it to expand into that great gift of creativity. Where does it go? Well, the life of Pi, who can imagine such a story? <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, and what an incredible um, life it's had. I mean, the uh, you know, he's been phenomenally successful. Um, yes. I'm sure that he had no idea when he was writing that book how successful it would be. No, not at all. And I must say that the, the movie, as beautiful as it is, the book has has deeper aspect to it that they actually did not include in the film because it's it's quite strong and it would not be a family movie there were some mm. really harrowing experiences and uh, i won't say what they were but for anybody who's curious read read the book and you'll read find the book. It. yeah read the book <laughs> read the yeah book. for sure always <laughs> read the book <laughs> okay so number nine you actually came up with two books here um I'll let you get away with the two, but we have taken a two out of the three that you gave for number 10. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, that's, that's stretching it too far. Um, <laughs> the Power of Now, A Guide to Spiritual Enlightenment by Eckhart Tolle and The New Earth. Um, so tell us what you got from both these books. Well, the reason I wanted them to be included as a pair, because to me, the power of now, of course, is to introduce to people the very yogic thought that, of course, goes back to all these books. This this is the most important moment right here, right now. And Eckhart does such a wonderful job of, of reaching out to all, all different aspects of people, uh, whether they have any basis in Christianity. Christianity or religion or not or philosophy or atheism or whatever he 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 has the ability to to bust through all those different areas and make it palpable that this is the most important thing in our life to embrace the power of now and once we get that as an individual our lives just expand and they'll never go back to being so in enclosed and so therefore the new earth is like part two i see it as part two of part one being the power of now because it's our obligation at this time in this era when there's extreme 
crises going on with especially the climate and also the mentality of human beings. I mean, people are freaking out. People are quite crazy these days, I think, because mental illness is off the charts because they just don't know how to deal with all the fear and, um, and bad things happening left and right and the pandemic did not help. And, and right now what's happening in Europe as a result of Ukraine, it's a very tense time. And so our consciousness, once we have been awakened to the fact that this is a spiritual journey we are on in these human bodies, well, it's not just about us. It's not just about us having this awakening. It's our duty to bring this consciousness to the world, to share it with our family, our friends, our community, and to do whatever we can do to bring it into our daily thoughts that life is not just about me being happy, but mm -hmm. spreading the, the awareness that I do believe the new earth is all about. Now, you actually attended a person-to-person -person spiritual workshop with Eckhart, didn't you? I did. The very How first... did you find that? How did I discover it? No, oh. how did you find how oh, did you experience oh, that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was just such an honor to be a whole week with Eckhart and his entourage. It was when uh, he connected with Tammy Simon of Sounds True, and she more or less spearheaded, okay, Eckhart, we're taking you out into the world. <laughs> yeah, and Eckhart, of course, wants everybody to experience what he strove so hard to find, which is, you know, call it enlightenment, call it happiness, call it being comfortable with what is, because he was very tormented at one point in his life. And he has achieved total understanding of our situation. He, he accepts what is, and he accepts it with happiness. So this was the very first uh, meeting in Huntington, California, before the pandemic, so I don't know if that was uh, 2018, I'm not very good with dates, something like that. It might have been 2017. Um, but it was a wonderful conclave of different speakers, different uh, people like, for instance, Brother David Stendhal of the wonderful, I think he's 94 or five now. I think he's still teaching. He was one of the speakers. And Marianne Williamson was there, and different various and sundry spiritual teachers. And it was just so wonderful to be, I felt like we were little seeds, little, little seed people getting ready to go out and disperse more intensely the work that Eckhart is doing, because we, we were, oh, not even. I won't use the word initiation because that's too guru-ish. He does not think of himself as a guru. He thinks of himself as a humble, simple, spiritual teacher. But because we got to spend this intense time with him, it was cementing in our ability to spread the word that this is our obligation as, as enlightened people, as people who want to be enlightened, that we have to spread the word that all is well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So book number 10, as I said, you had three here um, and we had to choose one. Um, so that's the one we're going to talk about now, which is The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell, published in 1988. 
Well, Campbell, you know, he's such an important teacher in my life. I'm sure many people on the spiritual path look to him as such a easy to understand teacher of the interconnectedness of the story of humanity seeking answers. And because I'm an artist and those encyclopedias way back when I was a kid, I was always looking for the answers. And I found most of the answers that I was looking for in myth. And the very first way I discovered this was one day I was doing a drawing. I was a, a young woman, maybe in my 20s, and I'd already studied anatomy and, and perspective. And I knew how to draw, you know, really well figures so that they looked like they were human beings instead of just all gnarly kind of stick figures. And I was just drawing what came out of my imagination. And somebody looked over my shoulder and said, oh, you're drawing Daphne and Apollo, which is this ancient story from Greece, those uh, wonderful stories that are the basis of so many of our understandings about the, the interconnectionness between our divinity and our humanness, where Daphne turns into a tree because Apollo is chasing her and she is not interested in Apollo. She really wants to be left alone with her own identity. And I had no idea when this friend of mine said, you're drawing Apollo and Daphne, but I went to investigate it. And sure enough, everything that was in my drawing was this ancient myth. And the more I explore my connection to my art and my desire to communicate, whether it's through words or, or visions or however, it, it is so ancient. I feel that myth is part of our DNA, that yes. all of these stories are within our makeup. And somewhere along the line, our ancestors were all the same. And we all have the same stories. Different, yes, different names might change and locales might change. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? It is fascinating, yes, and I think you're absolutely right. We couldn't even come up with these uh, mythologies if they weren't within us. Yes, and Joseph Campbell was very instrumental in inspiring uh, George Lucas in his Star Wars trilogy. They spent mm -hmm. a lot of time. They even had a filming of The Power of Myth at uh, the Lucas Guy Ranch, whatever mm -hmm. it's called. Uh, because Campbell was such an important influence on Mr. Lucas and his yeah. concept of bringing the mythology into this new age where we're comfortable with being space explorers. I thought that yeah. was quite, quite extraordinary. Mm. Well, this is, uh, this is your 10 best list. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. We've probably got about uh, seven or eight minutes left. Um, you have a spiritual podcast. Um, you call yourself a loveologist. Um, <laughs> and your mission is to neutralize the fear and confusion out there. And you're doing that through your art, uh, through your books. Um, and I think you have meditations, videos, etc. Just say a few words about that. Okay. So thank you for asking about that. It's so important what we actually offer the world rather than this big book that comes out every couple of years. And so uh, I decided to be more active because of the internet. It makes it possible that we can really reach so many people. And I think it was very instrumental that Eckhart Tolle 
inspired me also. And um, I, I am involved with quite a few spiritual teachers who are very expanded in their offerings. They're like my role models. So oh, when before the pandemic, my husband and I were going to go on a long camping trip. We love being in the wild. So I decided I was going to start a podcast. And my husband, very obligingly, he's such a wonderful trooper and champion of everything I am into. And I likewise am into what he is into. He said, okay. And he never even heard a podcast. He said, what is a podcast? <laughs> Well, so we started as people exploring nature. And then when the pandemic came, I said, we're not going to stop. We're going to explore the inner journey now. So for the last two and a half years, we've been exploring different aspects of our spiritual development. And we're dedicating all our conversations to help to heal the divide, which is a terrible thing that's happening in our society these days where there's just such extremes based upon, I think it's probably because people get so much knowledge from the internet that everybody thinks they're experts. So they've become very strongly opinionated. And in particular with the last administration that we had in the States, even more so. So we try to approach uh, it from a non-political and non-religious viewpoint but z lord that's named after myself because that's how i sign my paintings z lord <laughs> and uh we're in our third year and we just basically do everything very simply homegrown with an iphone we don't have equipment to have a guest or anything and we pick a topic each week and now the interesting thing about it is carter and i even though we've been married for over 30 years we come from very you know much different perspectives. He is a very devoted Christian, and I am an Eastern mystical person. God is everything, and consciousness is everything. God is love. And he's pretty much by the book. <laughs> you know, so sometimes we have to have these little repartees that are, I think, pretty important to have, because mm. people who just talk with someone who comes from the exact same point of view or the exact same philosophy, of course, all they're going to get is, oh, yes, 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 oh, yes. But it's good to have uh, some, you know, some drama, some, some controversy and different perspectives. So it's a pretty interesting podcast, I think. Mm. And tell us a bit about your books. And the books and also the, the mind stillers that I put up on YouTube. Each uh, every uh, other week, I put up a different way to approach a meditative state in a very simple way. Those are called mind stillers, and those are all related to what I do in my books. Now, the first book is an art book, it has very simple words, it's called We Are One, and that is my whole philosophy, my whole reason of being a public person to spread that idea, which is the truth that we are one. And I explain how I experienced it in the book and through visuals and through actual uh, text of, of writing how it happened to me. And then the other three books I have right now are nonfiction. 
And the first one explains how I took yogic empowerment techniques like the poses and the thinking and the self-inquiry and the ability to empower yourself to young girls in prison. And boy, did they need it. And boy, did they love it. It was just a wonderful thing to see. That's called in the eye, like me, myself, and I. Mm -hmm. And then the next book was called Zen Love which is an exploration of a blended family and how to create harmony in a blended family where people come from all different sorts of, of ideas and cultures and economic disparities and ways of life and cultural and education. That was my experience when I married my husband and became stepmom to two young kids and very broken kids. So it's a beautiful three-generational story, which is an analogy for what the world is going through right now, because we are becoming a blended global family of humankind. And then the third book, which I, get, I keep getting more and more into like um, cosmic themes once I started with the girls in prison and then the family, the third book, is about our relationship with animals and how animals can be spiritual guides to yes. us. Mm. So what book are you reading now? Oh, well, for my fiction fix, I'm, I'm reading uh, Elizabeth Stout. It's called Olive Again, which yes. is just a delightful I know use. that book. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. And I'm also reading The Immortality Key, which is... Whew, a real deep study of of how plants have a plant medicine and I know uh, that one too indigenous yeah. hallucinations and you know mm -hmm. the mystical experiences have influenced traditional religions and uh, I, I've got some climate things going on um, by various authors I like to be aware of the latest studies about what's going on with the environment mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I really enjoyed The Immortality Key. Very, very interesting book. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm in the early stages of it, and it's fascinating. It's like, whoa. Oh, it's got some surprises. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some very good surprises. Well, Tessa Lord, thank you. Thank you for adding your 10 best list to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's Library of Recommendations. We really appreciate it, and uh, it's been fun talking to you. It's my pleasure. It's been so much fun, Sandy, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this with you. You're welcome. So for more information about Tezza Lord's books, art, and podcasts, visit her website, tezzalord.com, T-E-Z-A-L-O-R-D. Now, as the spiritual book market becomes increasingly crowded, we all know that it's becoming ever more challenging to sort the wheat from the chaff, which is why we launched the No BS Spiritual Book Club so that we could provide you with trusted recommendations from authors, teachers, speakers, new thought leaders, and others who've walked this path before you. It's completely free. You can go and check it out now if you haven't already seen the website at the nobsspiritualbookclub.com, where you can also view previous episodes of this particular interview series and add your name to our Save My Space list to get last minute reminders of upcoming episodes. 
And finally, if you have a book in you but don't know how to begin getting it out of your head and into the hands of those who are waiting to read it, visit sedgebeer.com, click on the Work With Me tab and find out how 30 plus years of experience helping others tell their stories might be just what you're looking for. That's it for this week. I'm Sandy Sedgebeer and I'll be back at the same time next week with another 10 Best interview. Till then, it's goodbye from me. And again, thank you, Tessa Lord. Thank you so much.